to VBAC Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after caesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own VBAC journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is VBAC Birth Stories. Welcome back to the show. We have been on a little bit of a break for a very good reason. Mel has just given birth to her third beautiful daughter, Amelia Rose, who's just gorgeous. And I can't wait to bring you her birth story. She's just currently in that newborn bubble. And we thank you all for your messages and well wishes of support to Mel. She really does appreciate it. This week, her and I are speaking to a very special lady, mother of two, Lara. Uh, don't be fooled by Lara's soft-spokenness. She's actually a Sydney-based human rights lawyer with a strong sense of social justice, and that extended into the birthing suite where she pursued her own VBAC journey. Lara highlights the importance of treating labouring women as human beings and the difference that that can really make to having a positive birthing experience. Her first baby was breech, and after two unsuccessful ECVs, Lara had a trial of labour followed by a gentle caesarean. The birth was a positive experience for her, but three years later, she just knew that she wanted to pursue a vaginal birth. Despite the positive nature of her caesarean, she couldn't help but feel that disappointment following her first birth, and she discusses the complexity of this for caesarean mothers. She researched and she prepared for both of her births, but it seems the one thing that both experiences taught her is that you can't control every aspect of what unravels, but you can shape your own view of the outcomes, and there's some true wisdom there that I'm sure we can all take away from both of Lara's birth stories. Hi, Lara. Thanks for joining us. And would you like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? My name is Lara. I'm married to James and I'm a mother to Archie, who's four years old, and Gwendolyn, who is almost nine months old. I'm a lawyer and I've spent my career working in the social justice sector, including at the Australian Human Rights Commission for an Aboriginal corporation in Western Australia, investigating allegations of abuse in the Defence Force and most recently advising charities and not-for-profit organisations. My next adventure after I finish my maternity leave will be in the fight against uh, terrorism financing and money laundering. We're from Sydney, but we're currently living in a small country town in Northern Tablelands called Tenderfield. The global pandemic has affected everyone in some way. And for us, it was a redundancy for my husband two days before I was due to give birth. So to say it was a stressful time is an understatement. But my husband eventually found work out here and we moved when Gwen was just eight weeks old. Did you want to take us back to before your journey into motherhood began? Did you have any preconceived ideas about birth or pregnancy? Did you always want to become a mother or was it something that you didn't sort of see your life headed in that direction? I always wanted to become a mother. I remember even quite young and sort of probably my teens having a dream once that I I had a baby and the next day I felt this sense of like an absence, like something was missing from my life. It was so, so interesting. So I, I always sort of knew that this was my path. My preconceived thoughts and ideas about childbirth probably came from the fact that my mom 
mum had three natural births and my grandmother before her had four natural births. I believe that women were born and designed to birth their babies. And I felt that birth was and is the most ancient rite of passage for a woman. I believed and still do believe that birth is where we meet our edge physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And it's where a woman is really in her power. So it was my deepest, most heartfelt desire to experience childbirth the way it was intended naturally, physiologically, and to really experience my most immense power. And I wanted to experience everything that I was capable of. So my expectations of my own birth arose from those beliefs and also from the fact that that's just my baby (laughs) Um, um, I had always worked hard to achieve my deepest you know dreams and so so for example when I was considering studying law I was told by the career advisor that only six people are successful in transferring into a combined law degree each year I turned and said to my mum well if I work hard, why can't I be one of those six people? So I I worked immensely hard and I achieved my goal and was able to transfer into law. And I think I approached my birth in the same way. I prepared throughout my entire pregnancy and was unwavering in my desire for a natural physiological birth. And I had no reason to doubt that I wouldn't be able to achieve it. It is relevant to say that the context to how much I wanted to have a baby, I'd been told at a young age, I think I was only 20 or 21, that I had polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I was advised by a reproductive endocrinologist that I should just go on the pill to bring about artificial periods until such time as I wanted to have a baby. And then I would go on Clomid, which is a fertility drug, I was most unimpressed with this advice. And so I spent the next five and a half years focusing on my health to bring about natural cycles. And then when I met the man who is now my husband, we very quickly and easily conceived our son. And I was absolutely overjoyed. I remember upon hearing the news, I I distinctly remember going weak at the knees and this, it felt like the baby I had been waiting for and preparing for long before I was ready to have a baby. But I I always knew. Going into that pregnancy, it sounded like you had a fairly positive mindset. Did you encounter any issues in that pregnancy? No, I was very lucky. I I mean, I loved being pregnant and I, I was very fortunate with a wonderful pregnancy where I didn't really feel sick. I feel guilty saying this. And, yeah. um, and I was felt, oh, no. Everybody um, says yeah. that to us, that they feel guilty admitting that they were the pregnant unicorn. But I, I definitely felt a little bit more sick in my second pregnancy. But yeah, my first just felt like a dream and I felt like a goddess. I remember walking to work each day and feeling like... If I could look down on myself from above, there would be butterflies flying around my head. Like pregnancy oh. hormones agreed with me. <laughs> I was just, um, yeah, I was, I was over the moons. It was all going, going really well until I think about it. I, I spent my pregnancy devouring all the pregnancy books. I, I think I borrowed my first one from the library when I was about four and a half weeks pregnant. I did a hypnobirthing course. I had a doula when I was only eight weeks pregnant. And I remember even she told me, well, just wait for your first appointment until you get to 12 weeks. And I was like, why wait? I was so oh, excited. 
excited. Wow. Yeah, I booked into the hospital early and was very fortunate to get into the midwifery group practice, which is like a continuity of care model where mm. I had one midwife allocated to me for my care throughout my pregnancy, birth and early postpartum. So how did you find out about that in your first pregnancy? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question because I felt very fortunate to have found out my I knew a girl through that I'd sort of taught yoga to a little bit through my sister-in-law who desperately who wanted to get in but missed out because she found out about it too late and she told me she said contact them so I rang up sort of right away and I I was actually I was just very fortunate to get in I think it was sort of the luck on the day I called there was a spot and they said we'll just slot you in. Did you learn about doulas as well was that through recommendation or was that through your own research into birth prior to falling pregnant? Yeah, I think that was my own research, yeah, prior to birth. I definitely remember reading that having a doula reduces your likelihood of having in medical interventions or a cesarean. And so I thought I, that just sounded, you know, wonderful. To me. You were going public in that, in that <laughs> first pregnancy. Was there anything that influenced your decision to go public over private? I think definitely the the outcomes are better in that there are less chances of intervention and the rates for cesarean are lower in the public system than they are in the private. And so that was really the, the main reason I just mm. sort of thought. And I'd heard people who had, you know, great care in the public system. And during that pregnancy, were you thinking in your mind, I really don't want to end up with a cesarean? And if you were thinking that, was there any place that that was coming from or? You know what? I I don't think I was thinking that until it started to become a possibility when I discovered it around 28 weeks that my baby was brief. I had no reason to doubt that I wouldn't have a natural birth. I just... Mm. It didn't really, wasn't even on my radar. But then when I found out, when I found out that my baby's breech around 28 weeks, that's still quite early. So we weren't overly concerned at that early stage because most babies turn. Um, And so, but I started to, I started to to try things to help the baby turn. I tried everything. I tried acupuncture and moxibustion. And I remember doing it on our we, we were just living in a small apartment, doing it on our balcony and um, and our neighbours downstairs once, like after quite a few weeks, we were like, what are you doing out there? And my husband was like, oh, I'm so sorry, my wife's pregnant. She's, we're not smoking. She's just got these, um, like these smoking sticks. That, like the and incense and all yeah, exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Like, it was so funny. And so anyway, so um, I, I saw you know, a chiropractor training the Webster technique twice a week, which is quite, it's been, you know, proven to help babies turn if, and then I tried spinning babies positions like sideline hip releases. I lay with my hips elevated, my legs up the wall. I visualized my baby turning. So I started to feel as I can, weeks went by, I was starting to feel more desperate and frustrated. And rightly or wrongly, I felt like there were all these women out there having natural births who sort of didn't care about it as much as I did. And I just felt like it wasn't fair. I wanted this so much and it felt like it was out of my control and that I was potentially not going to have this natural birth that I wanted for for reasons that were out of my control. I did a hypnobirthing course and I remember it was at the point my my baby was breached and there was still, of course, time to turn, but I wasn't doing the, the practice as much as I should have because I felt so disheartened that 
I might not even get the natural birth that I want. So why should I, why practice? And which is a shame because in hindsight, I absolutely should have, because I still did labor and it still would have been helpful. And and even, even if you're just having a a planned cesarean, a hypnobirthing is of course is, you know, a wonderful thing to do for staying in the present moment. And anyway, What were your options, Lara, that Mm. they gave you? Because obviously you found out at 28 weeks and then as the weeks progressed, you would have been trying different things to try and get baby to turn. Did your midwife communicate what options uh, the hospital were able to accommodate for breach birth? Yeah, they did. So the, the options were were just a cesarean. There was no option to try for mm. a natural breech birth. My hospital just didn't, they didn't do them at all. So it was have a cesarean, have, a, have an elective cesarean or, or nothing really. So I, I think at around 36 weeks, I contacted Dr. Andrew Bissett's at the Royal yes. Hospital for Women in Randwick. Yeah, in yeah. Sydney. And so your hospital didn't give you that? information they didn't didn't give me that information so my doula knew of him and she she told me about him and so so that was wonderful so I sent him an email and I said I know I'm 36 weeks pregnant but uh, you know could you take me on and he was wonderful he called me and he's the most incredible man he's the director of obstetrics at the hospital but he has a strong interest in breech birth since the term breech trial which concluded that cesareans were the safest way to deliver breech births so he was very ahead of his time by challenging that the methodologies and results of that mm. trial was a very strong mm. advocate and supporter of natural breech births so I felt very very fortunate so Dr Bissett's tried two ECVs for me an external cephalic version and neither were successful sadly I remember feeling so hopeful because Dr Bissett's had he had a feel of my belly and did an ultrasound and was like, oh, yes, I should be able to easily just flip him or her right around. Mm. The baby was very mobile. There was plenty of amniotic fluid and lots of space. So he was very confident. And I remember he and the team, it, it's it's not a pleasant um, procedure, but I just sort of breathed through it and I thought this is, you know, getting me to where I, I want to be. So I remember he and the team working for quite a while trying to turn my baby and I thought, I just thought it was all part of the process. And in the end, he would say, there you go, all done. Your baby is now head down. But instead, after quite a while towards the end, he said, Lara, we'll, look, we'll give it one more try, but this baby is not turning. And I felt devastated, devastated. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second ECV, he tried a few weeks, a couple of weeks, I think at 39 weeks, because he, the baby was still very mobile and he thought, oh, I'll just give it one more go. But he didn't try for as long or, or as hard that time because he just thought this baby, he said there's not even, it was very interesting because I can't feel an obstruction there, but it, it feels like there's some, something's not not right. It just feels like it should be easy to flip him or her around, but it's just not happening. And at, at the time of my cesarean, he actually looked in my uterus to see if I had a funny shaped uterus or to see if there was any reason the baby wouldn't turn. There was nothing. There was no reason. He just, the baby was very, was just happy, happy with his head close to my heart. I like mm. to think. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you could also argue that it's the right way round because it's sitting up. That's right. <laughs> it's just that's having right. a little, you know, so but was bummed down. Yes, Was it fuddling right. breach bummed yeah, down? Yeah, so frank right. breach. Yeah, exactly. So what options were given to you at that point mm. after the ECB mm-hmm. couldn't successfully turn Archie? Were you given the option of vaginal breach or elective Caesar? 
I was given both of those options. So James, my doula, Brooke, and I sat down with Dr. Bissett to, to talk about my options. He said that he was supportive of my having a natural breech birth or if I wanted to have an elective cesarean or he said he could perform a cesarean for me at Royal Women if I wanted. And so I, I definitely knew I didn't even consider a cesarean I, I I said I'd love to have a natural breech birth I just uh, I knew that that's what I wanted I really yeah I really wanted that unfortunately my my baby had other ideas and that a growth ultrasound at 38 weeks estimated his weight to be 4.2 kilos and even with the margin of error of five or ten percent, that's still quite a large baby, and it was actually mm. would have been quite spot on because at forty plus four, he was four point four three kilos at birth. So it was it was quite accurate, even from my own research of the you know I, I did research of scientific papers and scholarly articles on breech births. I was so informed, but even all those said that breech births are contraindicated in babies babies that are heavier than four kilos mm. and so okay. it was with a heavy heart that we discussed the only real alternative which was a cesarean I mean I suppose I still technically had a choice to have a breech birth and it's you know it's hard to say that but it didn't I'm, I'm still sensible I thought if the medical advice is for babies heavier than four kilos is not to mm. have a, not to try then I, I wasn't I wasn't going to try. And he was genuinely large. It wasn't one of those growth scans that you have late term, which sort of indicate that they're larger than, yeah. than they actually are. So, no, that's right. yeah, so that's it was, right. was warranted in that yeah. regard. So yeah. did you want to take us to what happened with yeah. Archie's birth as you yeah. approach your due yeah. date? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'd said to Dr. Bissett, look, I really... I really wanted my baby to, I suppose, choose his birth date. And I still really wanted to feel what it was like to go into labor. And so Dr. Bissett was very supportive of this, which was wonderful because it meant that it was, he had to be on call and it meant that instead of being a planned cesarean, it was technically an emergency cesarean. So yeah, I think that I was four days overdue and I'd had a beautiful relaxed day at the beach with my husband and my water spontaneously started leaking that evening while watching a movie on the lounge. And I think there were jacket potatoes in the oven, but there was some <laughs> meconium in my waters. And, and because breech babies can have a tendency to come quite quickly, there was a sense of urgency around my getting to hospital right away. And that was hard because I remember sort of so getting things together and my husband snapping at me because he was quite stressed about the, the sort of the urgency that my doula was communicating to us and and I remember him standing on the landing of our apartment crying like this is not how it was meant to be <laughs> there was meant to be candles <laughs> exactly. and, and whale song <laughs> that's exactly right I know I know so um so we got to hospital and somewhere in that time between my water starting to leak and that I started having contractions and I labored for maybe two or three hours. And I distinctly remember they did an internal exam right before my cesarean, just to make sure in their words that I wasn't right about to have a baby. And I remember her saying to, to another nurse, Oh, I'm great. She's three centimeters. And I was like, three that's all <laughs> and she responded yes we haven't established you as being in labor yet and I'll tell you what doesn't feel good is when you feel like you've been doing the most intense labor of your life for the past three hours and they turn around and tell you that you weren't even in labor yet oh no <laughs> so, oh. I found having the cannula inserted in the back of my hand quite 
traumatic. I don't think they timed it very well because I was having a contraction at the time and I distinctly remember a tear running down my cheek and feeling so assaulted by the world that like my uterus was contracting to prepare for a natural birth that I wasn't going to have or someone was prodding a pipe in the back of my hand to prepare me for the surgical birth that I didn't want. But then the pain of labor was so intense that I couldn't imagine ever having a natural birth. And I was so relieved when the time came for me to have the epidural in preparation for my cesarean. And these thoughts were really hard for me to have. And I wondered how I would ever cope with a natural birth. And I questioned whether I was in fact strong enough. So the next three and a half years were, were sort of marred by a sense of awe and wonder at women who did have natural births because I'd, I'd sort of started but and felt the intensity of it but didn't finish and, mm. and then I didn't feel like I belonged. Like I felt like I was, you know, a failure, like I was a cheat, like I didn't rebirth my baby and wondering if I would ever be among those women because I questioned whether I was strong enough to actually to be able to do it, to endure labour. Mm. It's sort mm. of like running the race and someone taking that finish line yeah. away from you and feeling as though you've come so far and done mm. all of this preparation but the end point wasn't where you envisaged yourself. And so mentally that can be quite hard and there can be a lot of contradictions within what you were talking about there, like experiencing the natural labour but Mm. being prepped, on the other hand, for intervention and for theatre. Well, that's exactly right and that's actually exactly what my my doula Sarah said for my second um, birth when I fell pregnant. We started talking about it and I raised these concerns with her and she said, but it was different for you because... No, in, an, in a normal labour, when you're moving towards a, a natural birth or, or birth, you're, the, the contractions are serving a purpose. Whereas for you, you, all, you went in knowing I'm going to have a cesarean. So for every contraction, it was, it was a little bit like, what's the point? You know, I remember having my, mm. my chest down on the ground and my, my bum in the air, which is, which is not really ideal because you want to have the baby, you know, pressing down on your cervix to, to help you dilate. And I remember thinking, I shouldn't be doing this because this isn't the way you have a baby, but it seemed to, you know, alleviate the pain didn't feel like it was serving a purpose because I knew I wasn't going to be able to birth the way I wanted anyway so the cesarean itself was it was beautiful I I had asked for a gentle cesarean and I was so thrilled that Dr Bissett's performed it himself so he explained to me what he was doing at all times I don't remember anything he said and he did drop the drapes after the uh, because I think from the drugs and and all the adrenaline, so I don't remember anything he told me, but he did drop the drapes after the incision had been made so that I could watch baby being born. So Dr. Bissett's actually worked with my body's natural contractions to, to deliver the baby and he gently eased him out because he was obviously breech, his bottom and leg, they came out first. And then after a pause, he, he waited for another contraction and then delivered the head and then he was born. And I remember staring in wonder at this baby upside down (laughs) and discovering that we had a son because we didn't know what we were having and in my heart I I thought that we were having a boy and so it felt like confirmation and I remember my husband James saying beside me it's a boy it's Archie and that was sort of our favorite boy name and I thought oh I've just had a baby give me a minute before we decided (laughs) yeah he was he was Archie from that moment he was sadly taken over to the table first as they wanted to do their checks and, and they said oh we'll, we'll just be a minute and I, I guess in their mind 
they must think, oh, we'll just quickly do this now before we put the baby on, on her chest. But for a first-time mother, those five minutes were excruciating and they felt like the longest in the world. I remember getting cramps in my neck from craning my head trying to look for him. He was eventually placed on my chest and it was it was amazing. But I remember think, looking at him and thinking, oh, hello, who, who are you? I, I, I thought I'd imagine having this sense of knowing like I would look into his soul and think, oh, it was you in there in my belly the whole time. There you are. And, and I said, looked at him like, oh, hello, baby. But it was, it was love, definitely love at first sight. So, yeah. Oh, um, lovely. Another really hard thing was that actually after that time being separated from James and, and Archie, where I was taken to recovery and James and my baby and my doula, Brooke, were in a room somewhere else. They kept asking the midwife, where's my baby? Why can't I be with him? And she explained that it was because their top priority was monitoring me in recovery. And so they couldn't also be looking after a baby. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, that seems reasonable. But then also, why can't I look after my baby? And it was hard, but it was James eventually found me. I think I, I think he just must have found me. He came and, and brought the baby and put Archie on me. And, and then it was sort of all was forgotten. I was just overjoyed and, and I breastfed for the first time. And I remember, I think obviously the pain um, relief was still there because I didn't feel anything. So I was like, this is amazing. Whereas usually I think the first time you breastfeed, it's quite painful. Whereas I didn't feel anything because the, the drugs were still in, in my system. But it was just, I have a photo of me and I just look so overjoyed yeah it was wonderful and so I didn't then I I think was eventually wheeled to my room and and I just spent hours staring at him with the I think all the drugs and adrenaline in my system from the birth I just staring at my new son and and I think I fell asleep probably shortly before 6am only to be woken up soon after for a breastfeed and that was the beginning of motherhood yeah yeah. your breastfeeding journey I was going to say was it was that was that pretty good uh, and postpartum recovery? Yeah. What was that like for you? It was good. So, I, I mean, of course, breastfeeding is is never easy in the beginning because mother and baby are both learning and it's painful. But I was so fortunate to have a very close and beautiful breastfeeding relationship with my son for actually more than three years. Mm. I um, I remember, I think, crying at around, when he was around 20 months old because I thought I was going to have to give up breastfeeding in order to be able to conceive a second baby but fortunately I think my periods came back in a couple of months after that time and so I just kept right on breastfeeding all the way through my second pregnancy and I I really clung to it it felt like a lifeline between me and my son a strong connection and I just loved it so I was I was very fortunate from that perspective that the cesarean didn't seem to have any effect on my my breastfeeding relationship or my breastfeeding journey so postpartum I, I did I, I did suffer the baby blues for a couple of months postpartum actually which I think is it, it, you never know what's normal and my mood gradually began to lift and it never dipped into anything too serious it is so heartbreaking to feel so sad when I had dreamed of becoming a mother for so many years. My baby had finally arrived. He was healthy. I was very fortunate that I felt extremely bonded with him. And although I had time to mentally prepare for my cesarean, it didn't really do anything to alleviate my feelings of distress and disappointment. I felt like I had not truly birthed my baby. I felt a bit like a failure and like I hadn't completed my rite of passage and so didn't belong with all of the women in history who had birthed 
their babies and it was heartbreaking. It was a lonely experience because few people seemed to understand what I was going through. People would say, but you did everything you could. It was out of your control, which is a a genuine statement and it's true, but I just couldn't explain it. And then others would say, oh, as, as long as you have a healthy baby in the end, but these comments just to, to minimize the way I was feeling. Mm. So it, yeah. it was hard. Mm. Yeah. It sounded, you know, as though that was a fairly positive experience in theatre though, and that mm. the, there was good communication there. Could you have faulted it in any other way? I mean... No, 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 I really couldn't. And I knew that at the time, which was another hard thing to grapple with because I knew logically I didn't feel like it was a traumatic experience at all. I I didn't feel traumatised by my birth. I just felt, you know, those, I guess, those feelings of disappointment and but but I definitely didn't feel traumatized and no I couldn't fault the cesarean it was it felt very positive and no it it was it was a good experience yeah yeah I can identify with what you were saying as well um so tell us now did you end up conceiving quite quickly did you after your periods came back is that what you were Archie was three was it yes so he was he was not quite three yes so I in the in the intervening time my husband and I we got married which was very exciting and then Mm. I knew that I wanted to have a baby soon after the wedding and we actually went to Malaysia for our honeymoon so left Archie behind (laughs) with my parents which is wonderful and so um we had to wait a couple of months because there was a risk of Zika virus and then I we did conceive the very first month we tried which is again so amazing but we sadly miscarried that baby which was was so sad and I I won't I won't go into it because I and I'm I'm sorry this may now be a trigger for women but it is just I remember my mum saying to me oh you'll have another one and it was I was very fortunate that I actually didn't doubt that we would we would have another baby and so I was very lucky from that perspective I didn't think we would I hoped that we wouldn't have trouble conceiving again but it's just so heartbreaking because when you lose it you I loved that baby already. It was, it was early, you know, so it was okay, but I already, already loved that baby. And I'm like, but I loved this one. So it was, it was very sad. And I still think about that, that, you know, that baby, but it was very early. So I'm like, it was really just a cluster of cells, but. Um, but it's, you know, it's still a, an emotional yeah, connection is, yeah. and, a, and a physiologically right. there is still yeah. a baby there. That's right. And the, That's right. the baby so, is no longer. So it's. Yeah. It can still affect people, I think, regardless of the stage that you're at, you know, the nature of that loss. Mm. Did you feel affected by that at the time and and how did you sort of move past that emotionally? Well, we we James and we both grieved and and that was that was hard and we 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 sort of took Archie away a weekend away in the Blue Mountains to sort of process and because it was quite early, my doctor had said, Look, you know, usually we recommend you wait a bit to conceive. I I don't know that you really, I think that they did a blood test and it was a complete miscarriage. So there wasn't any, um, so he said, look, I wouldn't try to have a baby, but you don't need to not try either. And so we, 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 we then, we conceived the very next month. <laughs> so wow. I remember when I remember going in and my doctor seeing that he, I was on his appointment list and he's like, no, surely <laughs> not, not already. So we were very, very lucky, but it was sad that that, our pregnancy with with Gwen was then just in the beginning was marred a bit by some worry we didn't want to get too excited or get our hopes up too early which was a shame because with Archie we just I just had no 
doubt in my mind at any moment with Archie that it wouldn't work out. And so mm. we, we told people very early, I was just so excited. And so it was a bit different with Gwen because we were a little bit more worried and, but it, it all, you know, it was, he was fine. Do you want to tell us about how the pregnancy went along and what your med, your headspace was like? And yeah. if you were thinking about VBAC at this point, or were you just going to wait and see how things go? Oh, I was definitely thinking about VBAC. <laughs> I, was, I sort of always knew, I always knew I would, even though I obviously had doubts and I thought, oh, how am I going to do this? But I, I knew that I, I had to try. James was very supportive, although he didn't really have a choice because when I put my mind to something, <laughs> um, you know, there would have been no talking me out of it, but he was wonderfully supportive. And so we always knew I would try try for a VBAC I was as I said I was fortunate to get into the midwifery group practice and there were some concerns because it was a VBAC about whether I was low risk but they let me continue which was wonderful and my midwife was very very supportive and very understanding but throughout you know my my pregnancy my appointments so it definitely it was definitely punctuated with comments like are you going to be okay with having a cesarean if that hap- if that happens or if that eventuates you need to be okay with that and and accept that and which was which was hard because it didn't feel overly positive I sort of you know felt like well of course you know if that if that has to happen you know I would hope that it's because it's a true need for it a true reason and then of course if that has happened then of course I'll be fine with it because it's a true reason and obviously my safety and the baby's safety is a top priority so I felt like you know can we believe in me a little bit more be a little bit more positive about about this but I, I do understand as well where they were coming from and I just wanted to be sure that my you know I was in the right headspace and because I was uh, you know trying for a VBAC there were things like there were things automatically that they wanted to do differently so they wanted to give me a routine IV cannula and they wanted to do continuous fetal monitoring due to the risk of uterine rupture and so the idea behind the the UV cannula was just that if an emergency happens at least I've got the cannula in ready to go so they can quickly rush me off to do a a cesarean. As I said before, I felt like the experience of having the cannula on my first birth was quite traumatic, but I really, I did push back on that one. Mm. I didn't feel, I didn't want to be difficult. And so I didn't feel like I could push back on everything. So I did agree to the continuous fetal monitoring, even though I'd read, you know, research that shows it doesn't necessarily improve birth outcomes and it often, you know, leads to more cesareans. I did push back on the IV cannula and found, you know, UK guidelines on intrapartum care for women that, that mm-hmm. who have experienced a cesarean that re- do not recommend routine mm. insertion of an IV cannula. So it's hard being, because as I said, I didn't want to be difficult and I'm quite an agreeable person. So mm. I didn't want to be that person, but I just felt quite strongly about it. And, mm. you know, my, my midwife said, look, okay, I'll note it in your preferences but when when you come into hospital um, the doctors will still probably talk to you about it and recommend it you were yeah. with the midwifery group practice you yeah. said mm-hmm. does that mean that you got to see you ha- did you have a primary midwife and then if she wasn't available you would see one of her colleagues in that in that group is that what happened or what, yeah. did you see different midwives in that group practice how did it work at your hospital yeah I saw the one midwife so I saw Mm. um yeah Steph the whole way through and she was wonderful but in actual fact I actually don't I don't think I saw a single other midwife she was there for all my appointments but the night I went into labor she was she was not they're not on call 
all the time. They, they, have, they have scheduled days off. So it's more than likely that you will have your midwife in labour, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And I actually didn't have her. I had someone else. Ellie was just wonderful. Perhaps it was meant to be, who you know, so it was meant to be Ellie. We were told quite late in the pregnancy that I wouldn't be able to have my doula in the room with me, which was just heartbreaking I was at work when I found out because my final appointments with my midwife were just over the phone and I remember thinking how are you gonna check my you know check baby check my my um what do you blood pressure pressure and Mm. all those sorts of things I was like okay and so she told me I couldn't have I could only have one support person and that was just such hard news to receive Mm. um yeah we also had a few other concerns in my pregnancy and my morphology scan my 19 week scan showed that I had complete placenta previer I'm not sure if it can be called that that early because but it was it was completely covering my cervix and I remember bursting into tears thinking how am I going to have a baby if the placenta is covering my cervix and I was just heartbroken I remember thinking what is it with my pregnancies why is there always something but soon after I obviously did my research and found out that often they move so I just had to hold out hope that my placenta would would move and and it did my roaming placenta by about I think 36 weeks it had moved away and it was enough I think it was more than five centimeters away so they 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 cleared me for yeah yeah, they said you're okay did you have any spotting during your pregnancy early pregnancy no okay yeah they did ask me to keep an eye on it but I didn't which was really yeah that's great positive yeah yeah, so no it was good and then I think there are also concerns quite late in the stage about placenta accreta too that my placenta was growing into my uterine wall and then that didn't turn I had to have scans for that and then that turned out to not be the case either and it was just oh it was all and just like all of the things you know so um but I just continued to hold out hope that I would you know be able to have the natural birth of VBAC that I wanted and I just had to stay really positive in light of everything in light of the news I couldn't have my doula you know in light of the news that yeah just everything that was going on with the pandemic and then the, the concerns with the from the hospital about just the normal concerns with the VBAC about uterine rupture and all that sort of thing. It just, I just had to be positive. Yeah. Do you feel as though COVID obviously placed an additional strain on you during the pregnancy or do you feel like there were any silver linings to come from that? It definitely placed additional strain. It was just the unknown. Everything was so uncertain for everyone, you know. It was just what does this look like? What does this mean? What if I get it? What if my baby gets Mm. it? What if now we're a bit more, it's just become a bit more the norm whereas at that time it was all everyone was like what does this look like what does it mean and you know I sort of thought what if I get it then does that mean that I can't have anyone in my room with me or or what does that will I be separated from my baby and there were lots Mm. of the policies weren't set in stone yet as to what would happen different countries around the world were doing different things I think some babies were being separated some were being kept together and you know, the US at the time, women weren't allowed anyone in their yes. rooms. And then, mm. so it was, it was just all, it was just all really scary. So I was just doing my best to, you know, I was sort of meditating every day and visualizing and visualizing, you know, myself giving birth naturally and just, just hoping that it would try to stay positive. Did you undertake any birthing preparation courses? I didn't. Um, so to no, I did. I done the hypnobirthing one in my first, and so mm. I just sort of went back to my sort of tracks and and did you know listen to them while practicing. You know, deep relaxation, and I continued to read books and 
did yoga and walked to work every day and I was swimming three times a week and continued to see my chiropractor. And But I think most of the work I did was actually internal work and having long conversations as well with my beautiful doula, Sarah, about my first birth. I knew that I had to heal if I was going to be able to achieve my VBAC. I really believed that I couldn't just go into this one without having accepted what happened the first time I, I, I really I wanted to get to a place of acceptance of my first birth so that I could surrender to whatever happened in the second birth I knew I knew that it was okay to want a VBAC but I didn't want to feel the same way I did the first time around if I couldn't achieve it I wanted to be mm. okay with with whatever happened and and that took a lot of internal work to get there but I I feel like I did you know come to terms with my first birth and and accepted it and I now I definitely now feel complete acceptance with both of my my births so I feel like Gwen was a gift to say right mum time to do the work (laughs) I did the work and it's still a a process I, I definitely felt like I came to a point of acceptance it didn't come full circle until I had achieved my VBAC I now feel very at peace and accepting of of my first birth because I, well, I feel like now I've I've done it and so it kind of in a way having that the VBAC sorry it sort of retells the story that mm. we were telling ourselves in our first births or yeah. sometimes we can yeah. tell ourselves that your body's incapable of natural yes. birth and that's in the back of your mind and then as you go through the natural mm. birth you suddenly realise that's not Mm. true at all. That's exactly right. I think there was something that was healed, which perhaps never could have been healed without, you know, and I definitely felt like I felt that if this is my last baby, I, I felt like it was my last chance. I felt like I would always wonder, you know, if I don't get this now, I'll, I'll never, I'll never know what it was like. Would I have been able to do it? Would I have been able to experience that? you know, that power, that rite of passage. So so I feel like something was healed for my first birth just by having, yeah, as you say, achieved achieved my feedback. So, yeah, yeah. What was your plan uh, in terms of going, you know, with labour and everything, particularly after getting this it's devastating, I think, mm. personally, I think I would be the same, devastating mm. news that Mandula couldn't be with me, mm. particularly when you do the work and you've done the research and you know how important mm. a doula can be in that environment. Mm. What were, what was your plan at that stage? Did you think I've got a Sarah that might labor at home with me for as long as possible? What was virtual? Mm. I'm not sure. Like what was, what was going through your mind? Yeah, we talked about, um, well, I definitely wanted to labour at home for as long as possible so I could have Sarah with me for as long as possible. We definitely had talked about sort of doing it virtually. I think Sarah was um, didn't really, was reluctant to do a screen. She didn't want to be, mm. it to be distracting, but she said I'm happy, like she thought she could on the phone to have, you know, my ear, ear, earbuds in and, and listening to her voice. And I think we were just going to go with it and see how it went really see how I felt every birth is different but she definitely she was awake the whole time she was just awake at home you know receiving updates from James and just waiting and didn't go to sleep until she'd sort of heard from us that that we'd we'd had the baby in fact she was the first the first one that we called so yeah so it's it, it was hard to plan exactly what we would do but we just I was still holding out hope that they would change the policy actually I in the yeah. um I was I was a week overdue and I think I was 
holding out hope that either that first of all James would would find work and then be like okay now it's safe to bring the baby into the world and also that they might change the policy and I think it became clear that that wouldn't be happening in my time it, it wasn't there was no way it would change in time for me and also that I think once we got to seven days overdue they were starting to put pressure on me to book in a, a date for a cesarean and I thought oh oh okay mm. so, so I went home and I said to James right no more mucking around I've got to have this baby like I think <laughs> I was yeah I was subconsciously holding on I think when it became clear that you know I yeah couldn't hold on anymore that otherwise things would be taken out of my hands I then sort of shifted my mental state Lara assuming Gwen is head down this Bubba's head oh yes yeah, sorry yeah of course that was the most exciting <laughs> was- yeah I've skipped over that one yes so she was from about I think from the morphology scan they said oh um, that's right, this baby's head down. And I think she was in the 25th percentile. And I was like, what? <laughs> I said, a small baby? Like I'd fully prepared myself because often babies get larger. And I remember James saying, it's a girl. I said, we don't know that. Don't say that. Like, because we didn't know what <laughs> um, And so, um, yeah, so yes. And she, she was, she stayed head down the whole time though. Actually at the, at my 41 week appointment, the, the sort of, consulting doctor he had a he had a feel and did a quick ultrasound and said she's actually she was head down but her eyes were pointing off to my left hip bone so she was he said oh she's posterior and I was like oh but if she's you know so it was kind of partially posterior that she was not her head wasn't fully the wrong way around but it was it was a little bit off on an angle so it, she wasn't in the optimal position but you know at least there was still time we thought for her to to get into an optimal position during birth at least she was head down that was yeah did you do any physical preparation this time like did you do spinning babies anyway as a sort of or anything I did yeah I did no I was I did all the spinning babies positions and the you know forward leaning inversion and sideline hip releases I saw continued seeing my chiropractor I also I swam I never lent reclined backwards on the couch which is sometimes (laughs) frustrating because I felt like I did everything I could to make sure this baby was optimally positioned I, I crawl I scrubbed floors you know like hands and knees and but, you know, I feel like our babies, you know, babies, my baby's positions played a, a huge role in both of my births. And it's just something that we, you know, we, we can we can influence to a certain extent, mm. but we can't control it. So, mm. so did you now want to take us to what happened as you went into labour with Gwen? Uh, did you go into spontaneous labour or what happened? I went into spontaneous labour at 40 plus 6 and she was born at 40 plus 7. So on my the 41 weeks she was born. So I'd had an appointment to have a growth and wellbeing scan on the Friday on the 41 weeks and I think on the Thursday evening I went into labour. So I'd, I'd booked in to have an acupuncture and with this just beautiful woman who specialises in, in sort of pregnant women and postpartum period. And I remember her asking me to put my my five fingers on each of my hands together and she said can you feel a pulsing and I said I could feel a little a gentle pulsing between my pinky finger and my ring finger and she said oh that means that you know that labor's coming like the hormones are starting to work it was fascinating I'm doing it right now and I can't feel anything because obviously I'm not (laughs) going to labor so it was very very interesting and um and so I've never been able to Um, feel anything since so take note of that one yeah Yeah, you should try that now (laughs) holding on to the mic can't do it right now (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, we've got a month so, or so to go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I, I had acupuncture and then that evening, it was funny actually, because I then I think on the way home, I went to Woolworths and it's so funny to think, oh my gosh, I was in the grocery store the night that I went into labor with my baby. It just feels so mundane, but it's probably <laughs> a little bit of, you know, wanting to, you know, nurture my family, I suppose, a bit of nesting, like cooking dinner. And But I had a feeling that that night would be the night. I remember reading stories to my son in my bed and I took a photo of him thinking, I wonder if this is the last, you know, time I'll have you as my, my only baby. And so he'd gone to bed. I, I sat down on the couch with a cup of tea and a big st- piece of cafe style thick cut French raisin toast. <laughs> yes. And then my waters just spontaneously ruptured on the lounge. I'm like, you're joking. This Aww. baby's already keeping me from my food. And so, so it was quite funny actually, because I went, I went to the bathroom and it was, it's such a funny sensation feeling your waters leaking. And, mm. um, and actually I think that I feel like the, the baby must've moved down to sort of the hole a bit because it sort of stopped whereas with Archie I remember feeling a gushing Mm. and I think because he was bottom down it probably didn't plug the like hole as much it was just gushing out of me whereas this time was a bit more but anyway and I remember going oh oh and 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 the bathroom is next (laughs) to um the bathroom is next to my son's room and he was he was in bed and he's supposed to be asleep and he was in his cot and he's going oh Ooh, and I'm going, ooh, and, and he's like, ooh, ooh, and I'm saying, ooh, and he's like, Mama, why are we saying, ooh, ooh? And I said, oh, I said, it's because I think the baby's coming. And he's like, oh. And, so, and then that was it. He must have fallen asleep. But I just thought that that was so sweet. And so then um, I, I got really excited. And I think I, you know, I called Sarah, my doula, and I called mum, but I fully expected in my mind, I, I imagine there would be several stages. There would be initial stage of like very spaced out contractions, you know, 10, 15 minutes apart where you can get on with your day. You sort of pause for the contraction and then keep going on. And I said to mum, I'll probably call you in the morning to come get Archie. Like things might start happening overnight, but I just didn't think it would be. I thought I had plenty of time. I remember making a labor aid drink with like lemon and crushed magnesium tablets and honey and couldn't drink it at all because it just made me feel nauseous and I really should have just taken myself straight to bed because by the time I did get to bed around 10.30, contractions were starting slowly and I was able to sleep through them, uh, sorry, sleep in between them for a few hours and then I think around 12.30 they started to increase in power and I thought I remember getting up I thought okay I'm gonna get my my hot water bottle now I remember heating that up and then thinking what am I doing where's where's James James get up you you heat it up for me please I'm, I'm in labor so and they started to really to be really coming quite close together and they were they were peaking in intensity and so we called Sarah and my mum and so Sarah came at about 120 in the morning and mum came shortly after that. It didn't feel like long, but we labored at home for for a couple of hours and we, we called the hospital and so the midwife Ellie said I'll she she headed in and she said I'll see you there at around 3 a.m. or something. There was you know discussion about who would drive me to the hospital and it fortunately it wasn't far and I felt sad to be leaving because I knew that I then wouldn't get to have Sarah in the room with me. But I also, there's just so much wondering when you're at home, how far along am I? What, you know, I didn't want to. And once I got to hospital, I thought, okay, I'm here now. Like 
the baby can mm. come at any time. Yeah, you know, you can safe. relax so a little bit. That's yeah. right. So it was it was good. And so they actually, Sarah told me in hindsight, I didn't realize she was there for actually a good hour. They, the midwife early said, oh, you can stay well, just get get her settled in. And so Sarah's like setting up candles and, you know. Oh, that's just great. Trying, yeah. Trying to, you know, so she was just trying to do as much as she could. And then I think eventually she was like, I think I have to go now. But it was probably around... 4.30 in the morning by that time. And so they, she then at some point checked me. I didn't have strong opinions about exams either way. And I was kind of curious to see where I was. And she said, I just remember the look on Ellie's face. She was so, she looked so happy and proud. She said, Larry, or I don't remember the word she said, but, you know, indicating I, I was fully at face. I knew what she meant when she said it. I was fully effaced and, and I was four centimetres. And she's like, that's great. So you're an established labour. And I was like, okay (laughs) um then the doctors I think I was in the shower and the doctors came in to to introduce themselves said hopefully we won't have we won't have to see you again we're just so you know who we are in case something happens and started talking about the cannula and and now I I was in labor so I was just not saying anything I I just sort of was 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 in the zone and and so she's talking to me talking about the IV cannula and how they recommended and I think she thought that she was convincing me because I wasn't saying anything and then in the end she kind of stopped (laughs) talking and I was sort of like oh thank you for all that information but no I don't want it (laughs) and she was like oh oh okay and then she sort of James took her outside and and James like she doesn't want the cannula and they're like oh (laughs) so um um, but they did they did put the fetal monitor on and that was that was okay I was able to move around with it and it didn't it was a bit painful having it on because they kept trying to pick up readings every time I had a contraction so they were pressing it into my belly but I was just so just I just I really went went within in labor I just sort of was in the zone I remember James saying to me I just didn't expect you to you weren't communicating you weren't saying anything I just with all my reserves to just focus and I was vocalizing and I think I must have asked can I get in the bath and the doctor said oh we don't condone getting in the bath and I was like hang on this was never discussed with so um and I think their concern was actually just that if something happened some women might get stubborn and refuse to get out of the bath and, and I thought well I'm a very agreeable person I'm not I know myself I'm not like that if they're saying an emergency and yeah. I need to get out I would get out but yeah. but anyway so the similar thing I think was they did this whole spill and and I said I sort of listened and I wasn't saying anything and then I said okay can we fill up the bath now and she said Lara I'm not going to condone you getting in the bath and I was like okay can we fill up the bath now <laughs> so I just started filling the bath and yeah and it, and it, are you talking to the doctor or your midwife at this point it's a doctor yeah it's the, a the doctor, doctor isn't was it? Yes. coming in and um and so and then they went out and they didn't come in for you know quite a long time it's just me and the midwife yeah yeah it was the doctors and I think I was in the bath for you know, maybe 45 minutes or something. And then Sarah texted James to suggest maybe, you know, might be time to get out because it can sometimes slow things down. And so he suggested it and I said, oh, whatever Sarah says. So I, I got right <laughs> out, got out of the bath. And and I think after that, it was just, oh, it was just, yeah. I remember, you know, Ellie would come over and, and see how I was going and, and I'd rest my head on his shoulder and be like, so hard but she'd say you're doing it that's right I was in the bath and I had my crisis of confidence quite early and I remember staring at the bed and hearing about women who have epidurals and I said I just want to lie on that bed with an epidural and go to sleep and Ellie was wonderful because she said I know Lara but you're you're doing it and I don't think you need it and I was like 
okay. And so I just kept going and I never even thought about it after that, not in transition because I think after all that time I was like, well, I've come this far. That was probably, yeah, my crisis of confidence quite early on and then after that I just going and I remember sometimes she'd come over and, and check me and then or just see how I was going and she's like, okay, I'm just going to go back and do my paperwork now and I'm like, you mean I'm not just about to have a baby <laughs> any minute oh. now? And so it's funny, it's almost like they're, they're doing a job and I'm just here, you know, you're trying to have a baby and... But yeah, so I think around about 7.30 in the morning, she checked me again and I was eight centimetres by this time. So I'd actually dilated four centimetres in three hours. So they were really pleased with that because that's, you know, more than the one centimetre an hour. And so things were definitely happening. Eventually I... I started to make pushing noises and James and Ellie looked at one another and they said, oh, she's starting to sound a bit different. And she said, look, just just go with it for a little while. And I probably did for about half an hour, just gently. Then she said, well, I'll just check and see. And I think there was still a little bit of a lip, but I was mostly there, like a lip sorry, of, the, of the cervix around the head. So, so she said, just go with a few more, you know, contractions. And after probably only four or five, she checked me again. And I remember thinking that there would be some moment where it's like, you've done it. You're at 10 centimetres. It's time mm. to push. You know? But she was just like, well, I can't feel anything there. So I was like, okay. So she just started to, you know, get things ready. And it was just James, Ellie and I, and James was holding my hands and I was pushing and Ellie was very helpful in giving me some direct. And it was for maybe half an hour or so and I think we we started to discover that this baby was not in an optimal position and it's interesting because in hindsight I couldn't lie down on my side at all I was I was upright the whole time and I remember Ellie saying do you want to lie down do you need a rest are your feet tired are your feet sore but all I could do was stand and lean against or lean against the bed and I kept raising up my right hip whenever I had a contraction like lifting and I think this that this was Gwen's position and that she was faced on a, on a funny angle and I was having immense pressure in my back because her head was pressing against against my back so she was a little bit posterior so she because I'd had the continuous fetal monitoring I started to have some decelerations in the baby's heart rate I was told you know afterwards that you know, some D cells are not concerning, but they get concerned when the baby's decelerating when you're not contracting. It's very normal to decelerate during a contraction because, you know, the baby's being compressed. So it's quite stressful mm. for them. But, but there were some concerning patterns. And so the doctor, she said, I'm just going to go and chat with the doctors. And I think this is the beginning of what I would say about how I felt about my birth experience being quite positive in that they always were very reasonable and they talked with me and communicated with me the whole time. So there was no alarm or panic. She said, I'm just going to check in with the doctors and see what they think. Doctors came and, and said, she sort of had a look and she said, look, like, you know, I'm starting to see some signs of distress in this baby. So we, we want to get this baby out. And I was like, oh, okay, isn't that what I'm doing? <laughs> so uh, so, um, so then, then she suggested, she said, look, we might, we might do an episiotomy and uh, ventus for the vacuum. And I was like, oh, no. And, and she said, look, I'll just slowly start to get things ready and you might 
push the baby out in the meantime. There's no rush. We'll just see how things go. And I was like, okay, that seems so reasonable. So I, I kept pushing, going with the pushing urges. And eventually they did. I had to lay on my back and had my feet in the stirrups. So I remember thinking everything I've read is, you know, this is not the optimal position to birth a baby. So, you know, I was processing constantly as, as I went, as I went through and so they did the episiotomy, which was, you know, it's tough. I, I had a little needle to numb it, but I felt it. And, and so then they attached the, the vacuum and they, but I was still pushing. And they said that because I hadn't had an epidural and I was pushing so beautifully, that was their word. I was like, oh, that's so nice that I, you know, they were able to, to just, it was just almost a little help, but I was really pushing her. Her head then came out and there was a little bit of cord wrapped around her neck and it was immediately apparent to them that she had shoulder dystocia. So her shoulder was stuck in my pelvis. I don't like to use the word stuck, but that's that's what it was. And so it then became my calm environment sort of disappeared and they started to do the maneuvers to try and free her. So they were pushing on my belly while pressing my knees into my chest. And it was all very, it was really, it was really hard. I'd just been intuitively laboring this whole time. And then all of a sudden I was having demands placed on me and then that's how it felt they were saying Lyle we need you to relax you need to relax your legs because I think I was probably fighting them a little bit because it, it hurt so much and so we, we need you to relax and we need you to give push like with everything you've got like and it was clear to me the panic in their voices and it was so hard because I felt I had this moment where I felt completely spent I said I don't have and I've been up all night I don't have anything left to give and I thought this this my baby it's it's just awful but I just felt like my baby's gonna die and that's gonna be so hard but I can't do what they're asking of me I'm just I just can't and then in that next moment it was probably a fraction of a second I thought but I can't I, I have to give this everything I've got I cannot let this baby die because if if it does I need to have known I didn't give up that I, I gave my everything and so I oh I pushed I roared you know like a lioness like I just gave it everything and they were so encouraging throughout it and unfortunately the three or four maneuvers I think her head was out for about four or so minutes and they tried everything and it just wasn't she wasn't they couldn't free her and so they then hit the emergency button and everyone rushed in I remember James next to me just like breathing going oh my god like it was and I think I felt the same it was absolutely terrifying seeing the you know how much of an emergency it had become but in the same moment I felt like wow all of these people care about me and my baby and they're all here to save us and people they were still communicating with me they were saying there are just some baby doctors here just in case as a precaution people were lovely and in the end the most senior registrar came in and she but instead of going straight down to you know deliver my baby she came to me into my face and she said hi Lara I'm Tanya I'm going to help get your baby I'm going to help free your baby and I was so grateful that I was still treated like an, a person mm. in the whole process and she went down and was able to free her shoulder by gently 
giving a tug to one arm which made her shoulder move and and she was then freed and it was just the most I, I felt like I was just flooded with all of those beautiful hormones and I was like I did it all of a sudden in that second I was pain-free it was just like from one moment to the next and it was so I mean she basically reached inside me and I remember how intense that felt but it probably wasn't even the hardest thing of everything I'd been and the joy and I was saying my baby my baby I did it and I just I was crying and it was just it was beautiful but I didn't realize they put her on my chest which had been my my dream I think particularly my first birth was I so wanted to hold my slippery baby I wanted to birth my baby and bring my slippery baby covered in the vermix up onto my chest and I really wanted that so I was so sad that they cleaned Archie and towel dried him and put a beanie on him before I got him on my chest so to have my slippery baby on my chest I I didn't even know what the gender was at this time I was just overjoyed and but I could see them they were cutting the cord and I was saying hang on no wait delayed cord clamping and they were saying we don't have time and I could see the panic in their their faces and I was like oh okay and they immediately took her over to to resuscitate her and I later found out that she had an APGA rating of two which on a scale of you know zero to ten is Mm. is is not so good and so she was James she said she was a little bit blue and she she was not breathing at all she didn't cry which was hard but I'd been I was almost probably the most fortunate one in the whole room and I had all those the hormones from the birth coursing through my body and I I said is my baby okay and people were just saying yes your baby is okay and I don't think they knew that that was the case but they were reassuring me whereas everyone else was quite panicked but she came good so and so her her APGAR score at five minutes was eight which is wonderful and then it was I think nine or ten at ten minutes and their main concern about long-term brain damage is the the APGAR score at five minutes so the fact that she she her color came back she she cried and she started breathing was amazing and then they were able to put her on my chest and I just had uninterrupted beautiful time with Gwen and I remember them putting her on me and I I couldn't even I'd I'd ask them to please not announce what we'd had because I didn't know Mm. and I was trying to look and I was like I can't see what have we had and I asked someone what did we have and someone said it's a girl and I just oh in that moment I thought Mm. I can't believe it my daughter I've done it here she is and and she's okay and I was just so full of pride and just immense joy it was incredible and so fortunate I just feel so lucky that everything you know that she was okay I feel for the doctors because I think it's it's very traumatic for them and they were really it must be so hard for them so yeah so then after that they were you know I had to deliver the placenta and I remember that immediate feeling of relief was all of a sudden gone because you start to have contractions again. And it's like, oh, but I've just been through this ordeal. Why is this not over? I know. It's um, not fair, is it? I know. <laughs> so um, they had actually, I, I, I'd expressed a wish not to have the synthetic oxytocin needle. I just wanted to have a natural third stage of labour and birth the placenta naturally. But 
they said, oh, look, because of the, the kind of births you've had, we recommend having an injection. I said, it's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. And they were so apologetic. They said, we're so sorry that, you know, a lot of your birth preferences haven't happened. And I said, oh, look, it, you know, it's fine. Like it, that's all birth preferences are, you know, in a perfect world if everything goes well. And this was obviously became an emergency. So I just, you know, so appreciated that they still treated me like a person and kept communicating with me. So it really was the most positive experience it could have been given the circumstances. So I birthed the placenta, and but then I was losing a lot of blood. And I remember them saying, oh, you know, I think I'd lost 450 mils by that time. And they said they consider postpartum hemorrhage at 500 mils. And James was like, that's only 50 mils to go. So, so they did, I did eventually, you know, I did have a, a postpartum hemorrhage. I lost quite a lot of blood. So then I had to have, after all that, I had to have the cannula. Oh, um, no. I know. And it's fine. I almost found it funny. I'm like, after all that, I had to have the cannula and it was fine. I actually, but you know what? They gave me a little needle. It felt a bit silly, but they gave me a needle to numb the area. So it just went in in two seconds and it was fine. But I think I just because of the trauma I'd associated with it. So, and then I had the synthetic oxytocin to help my uterus contract to stop the bleeding and while they were sewing me up. So it just, you know, everyone was in the room. It was all happening. It was, was all the, happening. What's mm. the cannula for, Lara? When well, the cannula was to give me the um the synthetic oxytocin to help my uterus contract, oh, which okay. they wanted to do. So that's where so they were giving me the drugs through the back of my hand. It's like a little pipe in the back of your hand so for this yeah so because it was because of it it was considered a a postpartum hemorrhage exactly because normally it's just an injection in the leg right that's right and I did I had the injection in the leg yeah and that was to birth a placenta but it was an extra because I'd had the postpartum hemorrhage they wanted to usually yeah that the uterus contracts by itself and they don't need to rush it but because I was losing so much blood they wanted my uterus to quickly contract and go back to normal to stop the bleeding because I was I'd lost a lot of blood Lara you were feeling the urges to push right Mm. when Gwen was stuck for those four minutes and they Mm. called shoulder dystocia what was that like were you pushing in between the urges to push because they were like we need to get this baby out like Mm. was that going on uh or, or were you still pushing when you felt a contraction I think I was still pushing with the contractions I think because and look the contractions felt like they were coming so fast anyway Mm. they'd they'd barely felt like enough rest between them for me to just take a big inhale to then for the next push so there was not really any rest time anyway they were coming great fast. I felt like they were coming quite fast but I think I was still breathing and pushing with the contractions and Um, yes yeah yeah but I remember the the ring of fire as well and I got actually excited about that because even though it had become a little bit medicalized with the episiotomy in the vacuum when she said okay now Lara stop pushing and breathe and I remember panting I'm like oh yes I've read about this part (laughs) I've read about you know this is this is the part where I have to be careful because it's like tissue paper and you don't want to tear so stop and but I just remember reading about that in in Juju Sundin's um, book called Birth Skills and you just sort of slow down and breathe lightly as the baby crowns I remember feeling the ring of fire and I was like oh wow and then you know her head was out and then I was able to actually before it became the, an emergency, I would say they 
got me to touch my baby's head and I could feel her head. And I was like, oh, I've done it. I can feel her head. It was very exciting. And then, of course, when her head was out, what happens, the way they diagnose shoulder dystocias, her head came out and usually there's still a little bit of movement. It's not that the whole body sh- shoots out, but her head retracted every, ever so slightly, which indicated the shoulder was stuck. I, I knew about shoulder dystocia, but I just, it's so rare. I never thought it would happen and, and James so I hadn't really primed James on it and he, when he heard them yell shoulder dystocia he thought they'd broken the baby's collarbone or something they he didn't know what was mm. happening and so it was, yeah. now you also mentioned so what happened when Velamentor cord yes. insertion how do you can you pronounce that for can us can you pronounce it for us <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i think it's velamentous cord velamentous, insertion, i, think, I okay. think yeah but um but don't quote me on that because i don't yeah. think even they knew because the midwife was looking at my when my symbol she was looking and she's like oh my goodness look at this like she was just so i don't think she was entirely certain of even then what it was called and so she was showing us it was fascinating. So velamentous cord insertion. So my baby's umbilical cord was inserted into the amniotic membranes rather than the placenta. So it meant that the baby's blood vessels stretch along the membrane or my waters between the insertion point and the placenta. It's really rare. Um, now, fortunately, the human body is quite remarkable at self-preservation. So it's actually really rare that the amniotic membranes or, or the waters would have broken at the point where the cord inserted. But if it had, it actually, it would have been life-threatening for both the baby and me. And my waters broke at home and my midwife, she was so fascinated when she was inspecting the placenta and she showed us that the hole in my waters, like where my, where they'd broken. And it was only about five centimeters from where the cord, the umbilical cord was actually attached. So she said that it's, it's just quite incredible things work out that if this had been picked up during a scan, and I, it's just amazing to think that all the things they thought were an issue, like with the complete placenta previa or the, what they were worried about placenta accreta and all of these things, in the end, the one issue there was, was actually not even picked up. And so if they had picked it up during a scan, I would have been admitted to hospital at 36 or 37 weeks and had a cesarean. They never would have allowed me to have a trial of labor as the risk was just too great. So yeah, it's, it's was incredible. And I just feel so fortunate and grateful that we're both safe and okay, but I'm so almost relieved that they didn't pick it up because again I would have had that whole wondering what if you know what if things mm. had been different I never would have been able to to try and as I said the body is quite amazing that not only is it rare to have this velamentous cord insertion if it does happen it's it's very rare for the court for the waters to break where the cord is attached but it, it's it's such a as I said it would be life-threatening for the baby and me that it's it's just not worth the risk which is why they would never have let me let me you know go into labor then you know and they would have had to have done a cesarean quite early yeah. to avoid the risk of my waters breaking and amazing that they picked it up afterwards yes, like that yeah, so. yeah yeah well she could see like she was looking and I think she got a photo but she was like can I take a photo of your placenta this is amazing mm. please <laughs> how was your recovery when you yeah. got home how did it compare with your cesarean because you had an episiotomy as well this time oh, I did yeah and look it was actually it was hard and mm. I remember I didn't do a lot of research around episiotomies because I just knew I didn't want one and 
you know, but I feel like I, I'd always, I think I'd said in my preferences that I'd, you know, rather tear naturally, but you're so susceptible in, in labor and, you know, the prime concern is always the health of your baby. And so when she said, look, you know, we need to, mm-hmm. the baby's showing signs of distress. I, I knew that I didn't want one. So I hadn't done a lot of research. And then after this, I was like, oh man, I really hope they don't do those lightly. Like, you know, that it's not just like, oh, we'll just give her an episiotomy because it's the, mm-hmm. the recovery was, was, was tough. And I remember even a week later, I went back to hospital to make sure I didn't have an infection because it was so painful and trying to sit and breastfeed. And, and I remember walking so slowly and it was, it was hard. Then my recovery after the cesarean was hard too. I remember trying to go for a little walk at, you know, two weeks postpartum and feeling like I was like, I was mm. split open. Like it's quite, mm. you know, yeah. I want to say it was still better after, you know, after the, I felt mm. amazing after my natural birth, you know, and I think there was an immediate, oh, I don't know when she was laying on my, just those hormones. It was incredible when she was laying on my chest and I was just oh, that, you know, it was instant love and, that was amazing. So I feel like that, I think I would do it all over again. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. In terms of longer term recovery, if you're comfortable in sharing now, it's mm. been a while, like coming up to May will be one year. How, how is it physically in mm. that region and with, you know, the episiotomy that did it heal quite quickly oh, in the it end? Did. Yeah, it yeah. did. And actually when I went back to hospital thinking, this is so painful, something's not right. They were like, you're actually healing beautifully. It's, and I was like, mm. oh, okay. <laughs> so it's I just very, to- It's very hard because you can't see it. Yes, yes. I actually remember my midwife coming to our home to, to do a check and she said, oh, it's a good idea to have a look at the area so that you know if there are any significant changes. You can tell us if things look worse or if it's starting to look infected. And then, and then she had a look and she said, oh, maybe, maybe give it a few days. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe don't have a look right away. And I was like, what, what, what can you see? I think I was, I was, I was severely bruised. But no, it, it, it's healed amazingly. And I'm, I'm just, you know, 100% back to normal now and was, you know, even, but I, I have been for months right, is what I'm trying mm. to say is that it's all good now. We had a sort of a debrief with Ellie, the midwife, and, and she said it was fortunate that I did have the episiotomy because when it became an emergency and they had to get her out very quickly, it was very helpful having that there. So it was a lot easier for yeah. them to get her out. I also asked about what if I'd had an epidural and it was really wonderful to hear that Ellie said, look, you wouldn't have had any, you wouldn't have had any better outcomes, but it might've been mm. worse. It could have been the same. It could have been worse, but it wouldn't have been mm. any better. She said the fact that you could push so beautifully because you were so present was incredible. And it could have very well, if I'd had the episiotomy and wasn't able to push as well as I was, it very well could have they said that they could have taken me to delivery and tried to either deliver with the forceps trying like literally pull the baby out or or by cesarean so so just by not being epidural and and being able to sort of really actively push and and be active in labor I was able to help a lot and and I think it was very cathartic for me because I felt like an active participant in the process I was birthing her and I was doing the work and that rather than having things done to me. And I think that that helped a lot in how the way I feel about the birth. First of all, I was active in it and I had control. I had choices. I had a say. They communicated with me all the way along. It was amazing. Overall, what would you say 
that you feel um, you've learned the most from this process of pursuing a VBAT? What have you taken away from that and both of your births that you would sort of pass on to other women that may be on the same journey? I want to say that it was interesting for me that my baby's positions played such a huge role in both of my births. My doula Sarah talked about the the four P's of birth, physical being your body and anatomy, your passenger, so the baby and its position, I suppose, which you can only influence to a certain degree, power, the power of your contractions, which is all about oxytocin, and then psyche, so your attitude to birth. So I feel like I prepared three of the P's to the very best of my ability but with both of my births, the fourth P, my, my passengers had other ideas, but it was, it was also their birth and their right to express their individuality and to teach me some really important lessons to prepare to mother them. I feel like for other women out there, I would, if I had two pieces of, I guess, reflections from my own experience, the first would be to prepare And then the second is to surrender, prepare your body and mind to achieve your VBAC and then let go of your attachment to the outcome, which is easier said than done, I know. But um, every birth is perfect in its own way because it's how your, your baby was destined to come into the world and it may not feel like it at the time. It certainly took me years to fully accept my first birth, but there's growth and lessons to be learned in every birth. It doesn't mean that you need a birth that's other than what you hope for to grow and learn, but there certainly is growth to be had and lessons to be learned if you search hard enough. Each of my births taught me what I needed to learn to mother that child. So for Archie, I learned to let go of my expectations and surrender to the forces that I can't control had obviously come a long way before my birth with Gwen because I really just rode the waves. I remember the hospital staff apologising to me because so many things that were in my birth preferences didn't happen and so many things did happen that I didn't want. But in that moment, I actually, I was okay with that. I said they are only preferences and they're relevant if everything is going well. And I learned that so much in life is about your attitude and the way you feel about something rather than what actually happened. So when talking about my birth to a psychologist, I think I mentioned the word trauma, she asked me, would you describe your birth as traumatic? My birth with Gwen, that is. And I thought this was a great question because on paper, any ordinary person would probably describe it as traumatic. But instead, I chose to focus on the beautiful parts of my birth. I focused on the fact that I did it. I was in my power and I achieved my VBAC without pain relief. I was and I am. I'm so proud of myself and no one can take that power away from me. And in the end, even though I only got to hold my slippery baby in my arms for a mere moment before she had to be hastily and had the cord cut and taken away, I decided to remember that moment of pure joy as she was placed on me for the first time. And I exclaimed, my baby, my baby, over and over. And those are the things that I choose to remember and to focus on so both of my births I I believe now I've, I've come full circle and they are perfect in their own beautiful way both of my births and both of my babies taught me to question my beliefs and my judgments 
and rather than subscribing to a higher authority on what is an ideal or a good birth to make my births my own in all their perfections and imperfections. And the last thing I would say is it's so important to give yourself permission and freedom to feel whatever it is that you're feeling. Allow yourself to grieve. Allow yourself to feel joy and pride. Don't let anyone tell you that you should feel other than the way you are feeling. Because birth and the way that we bring our babies into the world, it's monumental. And so don't let anyone tell you that it's only the end result that matters. Birth matters. Of course, a healthy baby is the most important thing, but it doesn't mean that your birth is not important. So grieve or feel joy, feel the heaviness and the lightness in your body. And then um, look at your babies, look at their little fingers and their eyelashes and try to find the beauty in your birth, whether it's obvious or you have to search really hard for it because um, there's beauty and perfection and lessons to be learned in every birth. And my story, it's, it's, it's about grief, but it's also about acceptance and surrender and ultimately joy. It's about embracing my children for their individuality. It's about the lessons that their births taught me, the lessons that they continue to teach me every day as they grow and I grow. As there are a lot of women out there who will really Allah. take a lot away from that. Thank yeah. you for sharing all of that, your advice. And um, I think, yeah, like Steph was saying, I think that goes a long way, the reflection on your births and it's just perfectly articulated as well. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here and, I think you two are amazing what you do. So thank you so much. I'm so Aww. grateful your podcast was, was such a source of inspiration for me when I was pregnant. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this VBAC story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Be Back Birth Stories. Be Back Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.